Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Patrick Buriel on the show. Patrick is a client advocate with My Time Recovery and runs a sober living community with Nextdoor Ministries. Patrick is an incredible person and has a lot of deep wisdom to share with you. This podcast also is deeply personal for me as I've watched family members struggle to work through addiction. And I know there are a lot of people that are listening who have family members as well or friends that have also struggled with this issue. Or perhaps you have struggled with it. This podcast is for all of you. Let's meet Patrick and Baker will take us there. Patrick, where do you like to eat in Fresno? You know, it depends. I, it's where I don't like to eat in Fresno. Put it more <laughs> really? like that, right? Okay. But um, when it comes to, let's say, fast food or something, it might be Chick-fil-A. There's Rocket Dog. Oh, I, like I love Rocket Dog. I haven't been there in a long time. What do, you, what do you like at Rocket Dog? I like that bacon one, that bacon. Oh, yeah, yeah, one. yeah. That's what awesome. Like a hot link. I think mm. that's a delicious one right there. Mm. Everything on it. And their fries are fabulous. Yes. Yes. And that that's on kind of Sean 41, right? It is. It is. Yeah. Yep. Right across the street from my office. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on to talk to me. And I'm going to say at the start, I'm not going to go into any de- specific details, but I'm going to say at the start, I have family connections with addiction and have been on receiving end and have a lot of experiences that are going to color kind of some of the questions I'm going to ask you. And it's something that a lot of people, and I know a lot of people listening, will either know someone or have a connection to addiction or be struggling with it themselves. And so I'm hoping that our conversation will maybe guide people to getting help or guide people to reframing their experiences with people with addiction differently. I'll just lay my cards out here a little bit. You know, I, I really do think that oftentimes there is both not a lot of control and a lot of control, if that makes sense. You know, like when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to have clarity because uh, certain things are taking over and certain patterns are taking over. But I do believe people can change. And I think environment plays a large role and getting clinical support plays a large role. But then there is a personal agency component. So that's I'm just kind of putting my cards out there before we start. In this conversation, I'm going to ask you a little bit more specific questions that are around specific areas I'm interested in. So, And, and the first one's kind of a little bit broad. When you when you were going through your own personal struggles, did you self-identify as an addict? No, I tried to always think of myself as the other person. I'm not that person. At least I'm not that bad, right? Okay. So it was more of a self-denial okay. in that aspect. I always told myself, I didn't want to do this forever. I wanted to get away from this type of lifestyle. So I always see myself as one step ahead of everybody else when in reality i was just knee deep just as anybody else was inside their addiction yeah well i used to i used to in college and maybe a little bit in grad school i smoked cigarettes and i would always say to myself well at least i'm not a pack a day you know like i was having five to six a day and from from my vantage point it didn't seem that bad so kind of in the addiction world the world of addiction there's kind of kind of self-created hierarchies. Everything's relative, you know, so someone that's out unhoused or something is worse than I am because I've got a house. So that's kind of how people in the addiction world kind of frame 
their place? I, I think a lot of them do. You know, it's yeah. deflective off of looking at yourself and seeing where somebody else is and then just, you know, looking to find the answer that you want to receive. And so it's easy to look at somebody and say, well, exactly like you were just mentioning. Well, at least I have a house or at least I have money in my wallet or, you know, I'm not walking around pushing a shopping cart. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't there at one point. You know, I have been homeless. I have lived on the side of the freeway. I have pushed a shopping cart, you know. But when I progressed in my addiction and found myself not wanting to live that way and got out of at least that style of my addiction and now I had moved forward, of course, that came with a mindset change of, okay, well, this is not where I need to be. This is where I need to be but not give up my addiction. I chose to start, you know, selling my drug in more bulk so that I could afford more things. Right. Again, just justifying my own actions so I could still live in my addiction, but not be at that level. Right? I see. I see. Gotcha. And when, when people would try and reach out to help you when you're in the midst of it, how did you perceive that? You know, I took it, Sometimes I took it as offensive. Most of the time I thought, you know what? Okay, well, at least I know I have that on standby. They're just trying to help me. But they don't really know what's going on inside or how my lifestyle is. Also, you don't want to give up certain things. Like, you know, in essence, it's almost like, well, would you really want to break up with the love of your life? Or would you really want to get a divorce from your loved one and do it today and make yeah. a decision today? A lot of people aren't willing to do that. They want to work through their problems, right? And I think addiction rolls in that same kind of mindset, like, well, I'm going to try to work this out. I, I'm going to be okay. I'll do it next week or I'll get help soon. Yeah. Well, and and so did you, so you perceive that there's an element of judgment kind of laden in that when people are trying to help you or did you not perceive it that way? It just depends on who bring it to me. Okay. You know, if it was family in them, you know, I'd be like, you know, Okay, I'll take it as a loving gesture. I believe one time my ex-wife, who I don't have such a great relationship with, you know, and I thought she was just trying to like belittle me and say that I was less than. So, you know, it just kind of depended on where it was coming from. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. People judge sometimes out of fear or not understanding. But then also, I think if you have a lot of people trying to manage you, you could get defensive and it makes a lot of sense. And I've been addicted to things too, like cigarettes and, you know, uh, I'm probably addicted to my cell phone, to be honest, but that's a different kind of addiction. It kind of alters the way you see the world. When you're in the midst of it, do you tend to see the world as more instrumental? Like this person can help me get this and I need them to get me this or they're not my friend anymore. Or is that accurate? No, I think that's spot on. I was great at manipulating situations, people, in order to make my life easier in my addiction. So, you know, <clears throat> my addiction stems back well over 25 years. So during that time, you become very in tune at how to obtain things, you know, by any means that is, you know, and living in that particular lifestyle in and for myself, I almost, it, it really comes down to, I had to brainwash myself to believe I was something that I truly wasn't. I mean, yeah. generally, I'm a general, caring, loving person. I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing today if I wasn't, and that wasn't inside my spirit. But, you know, living out there on the streets, it is, can be very dangerous. It could be unpredictable. You know, there's no guarantee in a lot of things. So 
I would convince myself that I needed to be a particular way so that I could survive in what I was attempting to, you know, obtain. And so, absolutely. Did you believe you had free will when you were in that phase? Like, did you believe you were in control of your own actions? Absolutely. It gave me a sense of freedom is what okay. I believed at that time because I didn't have no responsibilities. No one could tell me I needed to be at work at nine o'clock in the morning or I needed to be in bed or even take care of my own children. You know, there was just a sense of ultimate freedom. You know, mm -hmm. nobody like the man telling you when you got to get up and go eat or do something like that sort, you know, yeah. and, and never realizing the entrapment of the addiction. Right. I often spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to say to someone. Can you maybe unpack for us things that are helpful to say to people that are maybe interested in getting help, but maybe aren't there yet? And then the things that in your experience were unhelpful that people said to you. You know, sometimes when people tell me what I have to do, oh, you have to get treatment. You got to do this, you know, and, and again, in a mindset of an addict in that time frame, it's like the last thing you want to do is here you are believing I live a free life. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And here you're trying to demand things on me, you know, and some people take it as as controlling. You know, a lot of people use different substances to be free, to feel, to lessen that control. And so coming at somebody in that angle might seem like in a loving manner. But to the addict and themselves, you're asking them to be relieved of their freedom, right? And almost be enforced into a situation. Depending on their background, they may have had a controlling spouse or a controlling childhood. And that just stems up more of the blockage of them hearing the message. You know, what I'm learning at this point is by coming at somebody with a more open attitude with uh, compassion listening like it's huge just letting somebody vent off and hearing them says so many words from the from the person who's being receptive to hearing tells the addict and themselves like you know this person cares and they don't even have to say a word it's just they're there to listen and you know but be prepared if you're going to help somebody in that that situation you know look out for the resources that are out there so that if they become open-minded to accept any kind of treatment, then at least you have that to in your pocket to deliver just what you're trying to seek, which is treatment for your loved one or, or a great friend, you know. That makes sense. And I, one of the tricky things I think, and, and you can tell me whether this is accurate or not, is the community you develop through addiction. Some of people that you will be incredibly close with in that they share some of your experiences can also inhibit you from growing. So do you think, I guess my question, if I'm trying to phrase this the best way I can is, do you think that addiction communities are actually really strong communities or are they, are they communities that will separate when someone needs to go on a different path? Because my family member has really strong connections to some of the people that also share his addiction issues. And so it can be hard to kind of separate from that, you know, from these people. Was that your experience? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, we want to surround ourselves with people who see things in our own 
vision or our own feeling, right? It's comforting to have somebody who can be uh, empathetic with how you're feeling or, or knowing exactly how you feel, you know, to pull yourself out of that and somebody who is just the exact opposite. Do I really want to put myself in that unusual, uncomfortable position? And, you know, it takes a unique process, a unique individual, let's say a team in order to start addressing that and opening that person's mind with being receptive, being open with open-minded or willing to accept treatment. Yeah. When you were in this phase, how, how did you perceive the discourse that's really common now that ad addiction is a disease? Was that something that you would have rejected back then or something that you would identified with? How would you have perce perceived that, you think? I think for myself, looking at something like that was an eye-opener because it felt like I had a title of why I couldn't quit, right? Like cancer just doesn't go away just because you want it to go away. You need a doctor to give you chemotherapy, for an example. That's an easy one to identify with, right? Once I hear the title, a disease, something that I can't manage or take care of on my own, obviously I'm going to seek treatment if it's through an actual doctor or through a treatment facility, but trying to find those options, but getting that word out and having people understand what the description of a disease is, I think is a lot more palatable versus just saying, oh, he's an addict. There's no chance of him having any chance of recovery or. Yeah. What was your self-talk like back then? Did you have, in terms of self-esteem and how, how you perceived yourself and how you would talk to yourself, you know, a lot of us can struggle with like very harsh self-talk. You know, I'm, I'm my own worst critic oftentimes, you know, and I, I, I am one that's quick to review how I've communicated with other people. And if I didn't communicate in the way that I wanted to, sometimes my self-talk can get pretty dark and negative. I'm curious what your self-talk was like during that. So self-talk for myself depended a lot on how I was doing or per, let's say, how many days I had been up. Kind of like how bad of my psychosis was if I was up for a couple of days. I thought I was Superman and there was nothing that could stop me. I was on top of the world. You know, when I would come down or, you know, getting ready to come down, get ready to get up, you know, you, the, the drug is not inside my body at that moment. You know, it gives me a little time of clarity, et cetera, or to feel sorry for myself. And I look at myself, I'll be like, what do I really deserve? At one point, I was homeless. And the reason wasn't that I couldn't have continued living my lifestyle that I was living by having a home, but I lost my children. At that time, it just became more like, you don't deserve a home. You can't even take care of your children. Why are you going to have a great time? I wouldn't even smile because I felt like I was cheating my children of something that they couldn't experience with me. So for the longest, um, it was a very long time that I just flat out wouldn't smile, you know? And when that happens, your inner spirit feels that frown and it brings you down, you know? And it's, it's a super sad time in life. But, you know, that's where the drug comes in and you try to mask that feeling. You try to get that, that feeling, that inner spirit to get lifted and, and you mask it. And, yeah. you know, as time progresses, the hurt becomes less or it appears to be less because that's what time does with things. It's hurt. 
and you become almost numb to circumstances that should make you sad, you know, that should bring awareness. And same with fear, you know, the fears of losing the worst thing that could happen to you in your life. Well, when they happen, what's the worst that could happen at that point? You know, the outlook on life could become very gloom, could be even, you know, suicidal, or it could be, you know, unintended suicide. By like my means, I would go do crazy things because I would want somebody to kill me at one point in life. You know, it can be very gloomy. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry, Patrick, that you went through all that and that pain there. And I, I, I connect with it, obviously not as experienced, but as someone watching. One of the things that I've gone through is doing a lot more reading and trying to really understand the experience of being in it, to have more compassion. And I, I think there's a lot of false narratives out there in society about addiction. If you could identify one area where you wish society in general had a better understanding of addiction, what would it be for you? Better understanding of addiction? It and, is... and people struggling with it. Yeah. Oh, for the people struggling with addiction. Well, no, no, no. So like the outsiders, like broader society makes generalizations about people that are struggling with addiction. What what do you wish people knew in broader society? To understand that perhaps the individual who you are assuming might be a certain way, take the drug away and you still have a compassionate human being for the most part. I don't think that any human being by nature is is ugly or you know harmful i'm not saying that there aren't because there are some people that are out there that are that are pretty bad in society let's be real but in reality you know removing the the hurt the drug and assessing what's really going on underneath the individual you'll find that most people are just that they're people yeah and oftentimes it's chance and accident that puts people in the situations that they get themselves into, born into certain families, born into certain environments, had things happen to them. You know, I've read many stories about people that have, you know, traumatic accidents, and then that leads them to want to feel better. And so there's just a number of factors that are way outside of our control. And that should humble most of us, you know, in the sense of like, it's it's by chance that you are where you are. And I could I could talk about this all day. It's, it's something I'm thinking about, but I do want to pivot to talking about incarceration. So I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of people that found that find themselves in jail and either or prison through kind of effects of addiction. But oftentimes those environments are not conducive to getting better. I'm sure you can explain that. What are the challenges of having an addiction in in some kind of facility, whether it's county jail or state prison, that make it difficult to get better? First off is just that, the addiction. It is extremely expensive. You know, people... There's not like you can just go and recycle cans in prison. You know, they got to rely on their families or if they don't, they got to do things that most people don't want to do. They got to do other people's laundries or clean their sales or something, you know, and generally it doesn't last very long. You know, when somebody's in addiction in prison, it turns out ugly. That's where I think a lot of violence does occur related to unpaid debts. It happens. And, you know. You might be, you know, a part of the group one day and then the very next you're not because you're you're no longer beneficial to those who are supplying that such. And then they also want their money. Right. It's, it could be a very dangerous game to get into 
in prison, you know, self-esteem wise, treatment wise, you know, unless the individual is looking or there's an open availability to seek treatment in prison, which today, nowadays, it seems to be opening up more often. But, you know, that's today, you know, uh, over the years that I have been in prison, you know, you're just sitting in a cell 23 hours a day, getting an hour out, they might bring you a pamphlet, you know, there's nothing to really to share. There's, you know, depending on what type of yard you're in, you may get yard time and you can hit an AA in a meeting, you may get church services, you know, but it's just to depend on what type of prison you're in and what the resources are available to you. Could be, what was what was the resources difference like between a county jail and a prison? So in the county jail, they would have generally once a week, somebody would come in for an NA meeting, perhaps that same day or the next day, an AA meeting. They'll come in and it's ran just like a 12-step NAAA meeting. You know, you read the traditions, you would go in, you would share a couple of volunteers that will come in, you know, would give their testimony. They would ask the inmates to do their testimony. With prison, again, it depends on what level of prison you're in. But over there, they would have the similar thing. And then they also have on open yards. You have a little more availability and freedom. For those seeking treatment, they do open up, you know, auditoriums and little classrooms so that they could accommodate such. They also would provide us with literature and things of the sort so we could all do studies, big book studies. So it is there. There's other programs as well and treatment things this this time around when I was actually as part of the federal system this time I was in a program called the RDAP the residential drug abuse program it's a nine-month course where you actually move into a segregated dorm facility so you program with your people you know around the clock we would go to a group from about eight o'clock in the morning we get out about Uh, 11.30, so about three and a half hours a day, five days a week. And then, you know, it's based off the 12 steps, but it's also based off the CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And it kind of goes into the basics of why we do what we do, our cognitions, the behaviors that come with it, and how we get the therapeutic side of how to address those types of issues related to our addiction. And it was very helpful. Yeah, I was curious to go into that. What, 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 What do you think... What was it about CBT that was helpful for you specifically? It was going back to the basics, literally the basics, like, you know, kind of retraining our brain. Because like I was mentioning earlier, I had brainwashed myself to believe I was this particular person and I had to be this particular man in order to do what I was doing. And that might have been true for the time being, but to go into sobriety. I can't keep that kind of mindset, you know, so it will go in and it will show us things, you know, there's the five stages of change. There's the three C's, we will call them cognitions, conditions, and choices. And we would actually go through and work the workbook that we would go through. It was a nine month, it was a nine month class and course, of course, because of COVID, it ended up being about 12 months. Mm -hmm. So It really works. And I mean, I truly believe in my heart that, I mean, if you want treatment or you want change and the person really wants it, you can find it just about anywhere. But the technique and the science behind what they have done and created has came a long way. And I really benefited from it. 
during my time incarcerated. I also not only did that course, but I seemed to excel well, so I would tutor others. So again, it was just being more ingrained upon my life. My thinking it started helping me change how, how other people would think in their addiction. I bet, oh, I like that answer. So I changed my workbook answer. And you know what I mean? And then you go back and you overlook it and you're like, wow, I really changed. You know what I mean? Because I really feel this way. And in reality, I've always been this way because I've always been a person who had a heart or had that in him. It's just I had lost it during my addiction. So I bring a lot of light to my eyes. It was very apparent with my family. You know, we talk about the ripple effect, like you were saying, you know, where you were affected. Sure, you may not have used substances in your life, but others around us have, right? Like the, the ripple effect that my addiction did on my family. The things that I affected my family with were, you know, pain, estrangement, you know, the things that come with addiction. Some people, I didn't particularly go to my family and still, but it does happen in addiction, right? how it affects them and then of course how does that affect their relationship with trust i mean in the in the attic when you're going back and you're restoring your relationships and in your life you want everybody to trust you. you're like look i'm doing good and they're like yeah wait you you forgot what you did you know what i mean that yeah. ripple effect still travels and it just doesn't stop there because you know it goes out into the community you know when we do what we do we we steal, we rob, we do whatever it is as addicts, you know what I mean? Like somebody pays the price for that. It's the ripple effect of the individual doesn't realize just how far it actually travels out. Two more questions before we talk about my time and then the work that you're doing now to support others. I wanted to just kind of get your general thoughts on two different areas that are often involved in support for addicts, which is religion and then the 12 AA that you described, 12-step programs. What's your perspective on those now looking back? And I, I will I will say, you know, sometimes I, particularly when it comes to religion, this idea of like conversion sometimes can be helpful in some ways, but other times not helpful because this is not a game where you get instant results. Sometimes that happens, but it feels very rare to me having been involved with this stuff for a long time. So true. So a lot of people think they just turn their life over to something and then poof, the magic wand comes over or poof, they get the magic pill and everything's going to be okay. With spirituality, you know, I, I really, I don't push religious beliefs up onto others. You know, I think it's more for them to find out where it is. For myself, I will say, you know, giving my life over and submitting everything in my life over to the God that I know was the fresh start of my life. You know, I had nothing to lose and I really didn't have nothing to push over. It was just yeah. myself. You know, at this point, I'm sitting in a in a jail cell and I'm like, you know what? I've had it. I'm throwing my arms up. You can have everything, whatever's left of my material life, my spiritual life. If this is really going to work, then use me in your way. And having that open mind being willing to do things outside of my comfort zone led me to exactly where I am today. So spirituality, I think, is a huge factor. Whatever it is that you're going to believe in as a part of your recovery, they kind of speak about that with NA and AA. Again, they're not trying to push any particular God or something like that on you. It could be anything that you choose to believe in, right? They say grab a door but, handle. But you're pointing out a, a, a good phrase, which is a, it's a part of the recovery process is not the whole thing. That's uh, right. Yeah. It is uh, just a part. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about kind of your transition to now being someone that helps others. Can you talk about what that transition was like for you and how it happened? Sure. So I got out of prison. That would be May 16th of 2022. My background, at least in, you know, technical terms would be in the automotive industry. So here I get out of prison. They I can't come back to Fresno because they say I'm high risk because of my crime. You know, so they send me over to a place in San Francisco and it called the Tenderloin. And I'm sure uh, many of people know what the Tenderloin yes. is. You're going to go the best environment. Drug, <laughs> no. drug dealing drug addict into the Tenderloin. Right. And and, <laughs> oh uh, and I'm talking about it is on the corner of Turk and Taylor, dead center. Woo. The Tenderloin. I know that place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an experience, you know, like, you know, I'm in this halfway house. I had the the freedom now to dress in normal street clothes. You know, my only really thing is, is that I got to go and check in and check out by a particular time, et cetera. But I'm allowed to go out and work. So I have to literally walk down the street with hundreds. And I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds of people in addiction every day. But I'm just looking to get to work. I land a job with Avis because it's Avis rental car. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going back into the automotive field because it's what I know I can do and at least make a substantial living at it, you know, to pay the bills, et cetera. I moved from there to another kind of driving job where I'm moving electric bikes around San Francisco. I'm thinking I'm still underneath four wheels and a steering wheel. There's not much I can't do with four wheels and a steering wheel, right? Fast forward to coming to Fresno. And I don't really have a place to live. But I'm coming home to see family because I'm restoring those relationships. And so I land a job. Well, excuse me, I find a place at a place called Centers for Living. They are a sober living environment facility. And after speaking with the owner and his wife, he said, hey, I like the way that you speak. I think that you might a good house manager. We'll, we'll let you come over here. You can manage our house for us and not pay any rent. And I was like, oh, that ought to be great because then I don't got to worry about some, you know, paying rent, et cetera, and worry about getting the right job. Uh, a couple of weeks later, after being there, my wife had made a phone call to a gentleman over here at my time. And again, it was a driving job. I heard, okay, yeah, you'll be driving clients to and from group, they're addicts, et cetera. You know, you've got at that point, I'd had four years clean or a little over four years. And so I was like, sure, I can do that again, four wheels in the driving, but it turned into something completely different. Everything that I learned in prison, all that asking God to put your people in front of me, let me, you know, let me be a beacon to their darkness. It came to life. It came to fruition right there. When I started working and picking up folks in addiction on the daily, and that is some that have been through residential treatment. And some that I was picking up from out of town and bringing them to residential treatment at their most lowest broken stages of their life. And here I get to be that intimate with an individual sharing the most deepest things in their life that have brought them to brokenness. And, you know, and because I come from that and have a lot of experience and a lot of empathy and just have so much understanding that it started to really mesh well with how I was communicating with clients. So as a recovery advocate, I would, like I said, pick them up daily from their homes, uh, bring them to group over here, 
We would do, you know, your analysis tests for them, just kind of like be a soundboard for them at that point when I'm a recovery advocate. There's a couple of other things that in, entailed in that particular position, but it seemed that whomever was looking over me, seen something unique in the way that my communication skill was with clients. And so now I am in charge of a team of recovery advocates. I am now a client advocate. I'm looking over six sober living homes, multiple clients, both male and female. And it's been a beautiful, enlightening experience at what I get to do today. It's the day in and day out. Um, following work hours, I also now am running a sober men's living facility called Next Star Ministries. And so I continue my giving back through ministry to the men that I mentor every day after work as well. So, you know, I still continue to do church services, et cetera, um, but I am fully immersed and involved in a multitude of, of lives. And it's, it's just been a great experience. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the programs My Time Recovery offers? It seems like they offer kind of like levels of intensity or or levels of commitment. You know, you've got kind of more inpatient kind of programs and then people that have work schedules and are struggling with stuff, but they can make their way in. Can you talk about the different levels of treatment? Sure. So at my time, we have exactly that. We have residential treatment centers where someone comes in, they may need to detox off of their current substance that they'd be suffering. Do people, sorry to interrupt, I, yeah. I, just one more addition. Do people know what they need when they come in or do you help them figure out what they need? You know what I mean? Like you know, they come some and say, do. oh, I, 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 I just want to come in the evenings. And then you look at them and go, no, actually you need to stay here probably. Yeah. Some believe that they need minimal care or, you know, and they don't exactly see just how deep they are into their addiction. That can be a rather tricky one to try to like, talk with somebody and say, look, you know, we really suggest, because that's what we are, a program of suggestion, that, you know, you look at this alternative that we have to offer for you, which might be residential, you know, they may need a detox. Is there are certain drugs out there today that are just really harsh on the body? Some you can actually die for, alcohol being one of them. You just can't stop drinking when you drink in excess and think that everything's going to go away. So we have a unique team that is uh, put together both um, from former addicts like myself to uh, people in the field of medical and science. And it's been put all underneath one umbrella. And we love to attack the idea that addiction can be beaten. It can be sustained and, you know, put underneath the rug, let's per se. It's still there, but it's always going to be able to come out. So we offer residential treatment. We also offer what we call a PHP program, which is a partial hospitalization program. Something like that consists of about six hours a day, five days a week, Monday through Friday, where they will come in. They can expect caseload groups that are, you know, one-on-one -on -one treatment, a little bit of substance abuse, mental health counselors, therapists, group settings. We also, during that week time, we have things like meditation, yoga, sound bath. And we're also implementing a workout, like a fitness class, nutrition. Wednesday nights, we have family nights. So we can allow the families to come in and learn about what their family members are going through, what they can kind of like 
possibly expect from a family member who's in treatment and how they can help address their own issues. We also do IOP, which is intense outpatient, which is there's one that starts about five days a week to about a half a day, 8 to 1130. Uh, IOP three, three days a week, it's usually Monday, Wednesday, Thursdays. We can work that in the morning or in the evening times to accommodate those work schedules and then start getting back into the work field. And then outpatient in itself, which is a couple of days a week in the evening times. Or again, we'll work those schedules for just about anybody, anybody who's seeking treatment. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a couple of Fresno specific questions. Um, are there commonalities with a lot of the people that are coming into my time or coming into sober living, either circumstances that they're coming from or common addictions that they have? What's your kind of, you know, general diagnosis of what what's what's ailing a lot of people in Fresno through your work? Alcohol, of course, fentanyl. It's it seems to be, you know, the most difficult one to it's aggressive on the body. It's aggressive to try and tackle the addiction for that fentanyl, the opiate crisis, you know, of course, you have meth and cocaine and marijuana and all the others. We have a multitude that are, you know, what we call N2O, which is nitrous. You know, we address all avenues of uh, of addiction here at my time. But definitely the difficult one that I've noticed that is like ever so prevalent is the fentanyl crisis. You know, I read statistics that from first use, average lifespan for somebody who dabbles into the fentanyl can be anywhere from 60 days to two years, you know, and it's very apparent. I mean, we hear it, we see it. When I was in San Francisco, it was, it was ugly. It was ugly. Let's say I sat you down with the mayor, the city council and the chief of police. And they said, Patrick, we want, we want to make Fresno a better place for people trying to get better from addictions. What would you recommend to them? Treatment. 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 Incarceration just doesn't do anything. Getting somebody nice and clean and then sticking them back out on the street and they go use again. You know, we'll be lucky if they live. You know, it's it happens and it happens every single day here in the valley. The the treatment side of this is something that really needs to be looked at, adored and say, because it's the only way out from addiction, you know. I'm not saying that the religious aspect, again, you know, some people have that beauty where they do a prayer and then boom, they're just like seem to be cured of it, you know, by all means, lucky them. But for the most, you know, it's going to take some time and treatment is the answer, you know. Hmm. And um, I asked this question to most of my guests because I think it's it's helpful and you've kind of already illustrated, but I wanted to give you another chance to kind of uh, reflect on it. I think by virtue of the work that we do, we understand things about cities in different ways. So I work in education. So I understand Fresno in certain ways by the virtue of the work that I do. What do you understand about Fresno given the work you do and the, the, the treatments you're involved in and the way you support people? I think it's a community involvement, you know, getting the community involved, breaking the stigma, you know, that, you know, that just because somebody's an addict doesn't mean that they'll always be under, you know, that kind of stigma. It's not something that has to stay with somebody for the rest of their life. It might be always present in their life, but, you know, learning how to manage it with the tools and the opportunities 
that the community can be involved in to support instead of just being so, you know, let's lock them up in jail. I don't see that as an alternative to, you know, the realities that this can be broken, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We need to, we need to help people not put them in situations where they could get more hurt. I'm fully on the same page with you with that. To close, before we get to books, I wanted to give you a opportunity to talk about ways you can support three different kinds of people. The first kind is people that are in the midst of addiction and don't think they have a problem, maybe don't want help yet, ways you can support those. The second group is those who are in addiction who know they need help, but maybe don't know how to do it. And then the third kind is really me, people that have family members they're going through it. And when you have family members going through it, you're going through it with them, you know, and you're experiencing a lot of the traumas and difficulties that people, that the addicts themselves experience, not to the same degree, but you're in it. So how would you, lights went off. How would you, how would you recommend best supporting each of those three demographics? You know, for those that aren't even aware that they need help or just flat out, just in flat denial, you know, be careful, love them from a distance and, you know, always offer the support and let them know that it's, it's there with, for them. That would be my suggestion for those that are just in flat out, not even aware that they have an addiction, you know, hold boundaries in your own self so that you don't enable a particular type of lifestyle just like that. For those who want help, you know, seek it out, try things, step out of your comfort zone, Try getting into a meeting, try getting into a church. You got to take that first step. You know, the, the way to get to the end of your journey is to take your first step into it. And if you do that, you know, it's just exposure, expose yourself that it may take a lot to expose or say something about yourself. But when you do the first step of exposure of yourself, you're going to find that there is going to be a relief. You no longer have to live under this guise of lie or or anything else. Like, And when you take that one little step and you find out that the end result wasn't what you expected, again, you had mentioned it very early on that you're your worst critic, right? We like to predict how things are going to do. And then as addicts and people that are in addiction, we assume we already know. I mean, because we put ourselves in such a small bubble, even though the addiction world can go wide. But we're trapped in a bubble. And so we do that. So our lives are predictable. We know what to expect. We know what we're going to get when we get the next hit. We know what we're going to get when they get the next bottle. You know, so breaking yourself free of that, exposing yourself and saying that is a first opportunity that you could really make a difference in your own life and see that the end result wasn't exactly what you expected. It actually came out probably better. And that's one thing I will say that I do is I put myself in uncomfortable positions, places that intimidate me because I assume it's going to be the worst. Somebody asked me out to dinner and I'm like, I don't want to go, but I just go anyways. And I come at the end of the night and I go, you know what? I really had a good time tonight. It's those little things, the baby steps, but capitalize on them because they mean so much more to your treatment in your life than you really know. For those who are have been affected by addiction, by a loved one, you know, reach out. There's other places. There's Al-Anon. There's, you know, treatment centers that are willing to help. Like my time, we have those family, excuse me, the family counseling that comes along with our treatment, you know, utilize those tools and listen and implement them in your life. When they say hold boundaries with your loved one, because, you know, you may be given the money 
or you may open your door to them. Take the advice of the professionals. That's what they do on a daily basis. They're not trying to harm anybody. They're not trying to benefit anybody. We're trying to beat a crisis here that's called addiction, and it is real. And, you know, by enabling something, you don't want to be that person at the end of the day that says, I would have, should have, could have, you know, and then you're sitting there at a, at a funeral and saying, if I wouldn't have given them that last $20 or if I wouldn't have done this, like, don't live your life like that. Know that what you put out for your loved one is everything that you could have done. And even if that includes that tough love, it is it is paramount in what you got to do. You got to reach out to others. So definitely. Yeah, I, I love that reaching out to people to support you and putting yourself in the environments that will help you. We always close in the same place, which is book recommendations. What are a few books you'd recommend to listeners? I'm going to say Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's a classic. I think that book was written in 1937. It's still relevant today, although when you read through it and they're talking about, you know, getting on the phone or going into Joe's office or something like that, it may not be just like that. But I do believe the success and the, you know, it is there still till this day. It's really super uh relevant in my life. I love that book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. What is his name? Nagasaki? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. That's another one I really enjoy. You can actually read that with even a younger crowd to kind of get it in. It's about a young man who had a a friend's dad and his real dad. And it was really interesting. It's another success, financial, becoming, you know, financially literate in those sets. Coming out of addiction, I think that's important to have an idea of how money works. Sometimes we lose touch. And then right now I'm reading a book by Patrick Leononi, I believe it is. Leononi. Yeah, you said it right. right. uh, Yeah, and it is called The Ideal Team Player. The Ideal Team Player. Learning how to work with your team, how to build your team, you know, so that you can all have a better understanding of one another or your purpose, where you're going. Another just book of how to become a little more successful at what you're doing. Fantastic. Well, uh, to close, uh, how can people find out more about my time as well as your sober living community? And if they need help, what's the best way to go about it? You can go to mytime.com. You can go to my sober living is nextdoorministries.org. You can always reach out to us by phone number. We have a multitude. My phone number is 559-367. We have an intake uh, treatment placement coordinator. His name is Tyler Hamilton. He's 559-367-2758. We, our phone lines are generally open. At least I know mine is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't get a day off, but that's okay. I love what I do and, and do what I love. So I don't even work. That's how I feel every day. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. And I got to tell you, this conversation was definitely healing for my soul. And I know there's people that need help. And so I hope they use, use your services because it seems like a wonderful program to support people trying to improve their lives. So... I appreciate you taking the time, Patrick, and for the work you do. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash best. We'll see you next time.